So when you fully understand your identity and how it's impacted your money story and the way that you move through the world, then you you have this greater understanding of how that's going to then impact your money. In terms of financial management, I think that your identity really impacts the ways that you choose to spend your money and also the areas of your life that might require more money that other people without those identities may not have to spend money on. So for me personally, I take ADHD medication. So that is a monthly expense that I have. And a lot of people are on different medications. That's an increased monthly expense. It could also mean uh, different things like accommodations or adaptations that you need in your daily life. Financial feminists, welcome back to the show. Welcome to the new year. We're so excited to see you. I, thanks for being here. Thanks for coming back to the show. And if you're new to the show, we're so excited to have you. My name is Tori. I run her first 100K, which produces this podcast. And I am a money expert. I'm a multimillionaire. I'm a New York Times bestselling author. And I fight the patriarchy by making you rich. Couple housekeeping things. Please subscribe to the show wherever you're listening right now. It is the easiest way to support our work. That literal just one tap of a button allows us to keep producing the show and get amazing guests. So we thank you for your support. And if you're on Spotify, feel free to interact down below. You might not know, but there's a little thing where you can go, a little box where you can ask questions, where you can comment on the show and share your biggest learnings. And it allows us to also do the best work that we can for you. So thanks for being here. All right. We're excited for today's guest. This has been a long time coming and something that you have all requested. And she also has a new book out. So we're really excited for her to be on the show today. Elise Fulmore is a queer and neurodivergent financial educator, content creator, soon-to-be published author, and the founder of Queered Co., a financial literacy company. Her approach to financial literacy goes beyond the conventional, focusing on the intersectionality of identities and lived experiences. Elise is passionate about helping her online community of over half a million find the right tools, strategies, and perspective to create a life where financial stability and joy coexist. Her book, Keeping Finance Personal, comes out on January 23rd. Burr, 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 burr. In this episode, we discuss what it really means when we say personal finance is personal, the idea and the implementation of identity ROI of managing your finances based on your identity and your own life and characteristics. We talk about finances for traditionally underrepresented groups like trans folks, neurodivergent people, polyamorous people. And we do a little bonus lightning round of some of Elise's favorite Canadian personal finance recommendations. So if you are Canadian, this is also especially going to be a good episode for you. And without further ado, let's go ahead and get into it. But first, a word from our sponsors. The lava lamp behind you is just iconic. Thank you so much. <laughs> I put it in my author bio as like, Elise lives in Calgary, Alberta with her partner and giant lava lamp because it's like my child. <laughs> I remember I asked for one for my 10th birthday and I got it and I was very, very, very thrilled oh about it. Oh my gosh, that's it was amazing. very exciting. It's, it's, it's like pink. If you're not watching on YouTube, it is pink and bright and beautiful and it's glorious. It's like two feet tall. It. It's huge. And it's my prized possession. <laughs> it makes me want to get one. Like truly, it makes me want to get. 
you really should. It's the increase to my happiness and productivity, I feel like, is exponential. Tell me more. (laughs) Tell me more about it. Like the productivity. I just, it creates such a nice vibe in my office. And then like when it gets darker, my whole office is like in this little pink glow. And it makes me want to like, you know, in the winter when it gets dark so early, Uh I'm still feeling like it's a cozy vibe. I'm still ready to work instead of like a, oh, it's dark and gloomy vibe. (laughs) I am being influenced right now. I'm literally searching lava lamp. What do they even cost now? It's like $150. It's pricey. It's a business expense though. It goes in the office. Yeah. (laughs) It's a business expense. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, in my opinion, worth it. (laughs) Oh, my God. I just got like every single color that's available. Okay. Well, this is what I'm doing after we get off. I'm very excited. Um, Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. We were talking before we jumped on that. It feels like we've known each other for a long time because the personal finance community is both very supportive and also surprisingly tiny in a lot of ways, especially TikTok finance community. So we're just really excited to have you. One of the things that we love asking money experts who come on the show is if they can share their first money memory, the first time you remember thinking about money. Okay, this is funny because I wrote about this in my book and I actually said like, I don't know what my first money memory is because I don't remember like anything from my childhood. But I've been thinking about it for months since I wrote my book. And I think that my first money memory is when I was younger, I was in recreational gymnastics and I really wanted to try out for the competitive team. And I remember my parents telling me, we can't afford that. So like, you can't try out for the competitive team. And I think that is the first, that is as far back as I remember. And that's probably my first money memory. Honestly, kind of devastating. Yeah. (laughs) Where you're just like, money is the thing that's holding me back from being able to pursue this thing. Yeah, exactly. But I ended up being able to try out for the competitive team later on when my dad started getting promoted and making more money. So all is well. I ended up doing competitive gymnastics for a large portion of my life, but it was devastating at the time. Yeah. One of the things that you talk about in your experience a lot that we really wanted to highlight is your experience with ADHD and autism. Can you walk us through your story and learning more about this, how it changed your relationship both to yourself and with money? Yeah. So I am diagnosed with ADHD and self-diagnosed autistic. And the autism part of it is something I haven't actually talked about a lot and I'm still exploring myself. But the ADHD aspect, I've done a lot of research and learned a lot about. And for me, that was actually a five-year process of seeing different healthcare professionals and trying to get answers. And at the time, it was because I was experiencing a lot of fatigue and brain fog. And so I was seeing a bunch of different doctors. I got sent for blood tests. I got sent to an ears, nose, and throat specialist, allergy testing, daytime and nighttime sleep studies, like so many tests. And I kept being told that it was just stress or I had anxiety. And that was the cause of it. And at the time, I didn't know a lot about ADHD. So that wasn't even on my radar. And I just was really frustrated and seeing all these different doctors. My symptoms worsened a lot during the pandemic. and. I was laid off from my part-time job, which then resulted in me not being able to take care of myself at home, like really struggling to prioritize tasks, really get anything done. And like a lot of other people, I started spending a lot of time on TikTok, which was what introduced me to ADHD 
and specifically how ADHD affected women, because my perception of ADHD was kind of the stereotypical definition of like the young boy who is really hyperactive and can't pay attention in class. And because I had always done well in school, I kind of had immediately wrote that off. So as I started to see more content on TikTok, I went and did my own research and started learning a lot more about it and how it affects women. And I was 100% convinced at that point that I had ADHD. So I went to my doctor and I said, I know I have ADHD, you need to test me for it. And that is what eventually led to my diagnosis. And since then, it has honestly changed, I feel like everything about my life, because the way that I view the world, the way that I interact with people, the way that I work, the way that I spend my money and manage my money, like that's all affected by my ADHD. And I think in terms of my relationship with money, it's actually improved it a lot because I now had the understanding of why I had struggled with my finances in the past and why like specifically I had struggled with impulse spending racking up debt, struggles sticking to a budget and like paying bills on time and things like that. So it actually allowed me to release a lot of the shame I was feeling because I now understood that it wasn't my fault and that my brain is just wired differently. It also allowed me to figure out the different systems and tools that worked well for my brain and how I need to do things differently in order to have a good relationship with money. So Yeah, it's hard to almost verbalize it because it honestly has affected every single area of my life. And I think that it's mostly been positive, but it also has been hard in a lot of ways. I think it's a kind of comes in waves. Like initially, I was very relieved that I had answers and I felt validated that I was struggling with something and finally I had answers. But I also had waves of like grief almost of how my life could have been different and how I could have done things differently and like replaying situations in my head that now made sense and had context, but didn't make sense at the time. So yeah, it's been a process and it still happens where I have moments even now that I remember from my childhood and I'm like, wow, this is why this happened or this is why I acted this way or this is why I struggled with this thing. So yeah, it's been a very interesting journey, but overall, it's really been helpful for my relationship with money. Well, and one of the things you said that I really want to highlight is that whether you're neurospicy or not, I think that there's so much shame, of course, around money, but specifically like, this is the way I should be doing it. And why can't I do it this way? And then beating yourself up when you can't. And I think offering yourself grace and understanding is so crucial, but one of the most difficult skills to learn. I love that you got to the point where you were able to contextualize your decisions and offer yourself some grace for that. Yeah. And and something I say a lot for everyone, but also especially if you're neurodivergent, is that it's not your fault because you were never given the tools to succeed. Especially like if you're neurodivergent, so much of the financial education and systems and tools out there were designed for and by neurotypical people. So of course, it's not going to work for you because it wasn't designed for your brain and your brain works differently. But I think also just applies to everyone that like many people were not taught about money. And so it's not your fault when you weren't given the tools that you're now struggling with money. What was one of the breakthrough moments for you when you felt like, oh, so this is the key to making this work for me? I feel like it was a lot of trial and error and also actually a lot of breakthroughs that happened in other areas of my life 
when I got diagnosed with ADHD, I, you know, started to look up resources and tools and like learn more about how to live with ADHD and like set up systems in your life that make things easier. And so there's a lot of education out there on those things. So I started to learn how to make like meal prepping and cooking meals and cleaning my home easier and doing my bedtime routine and getting to bed on a good time, like getting, you know, making those things easier. And that helped me learn more about what things motivated me, how my brain worked. And then that led to the realization that I could apply some of these strategies to my finances. And I think if I had to think of a specific example for finances, one of the tools that was a kind of aha moment for me was using an allowance card. So there's a card called Coho here in Canada that's like a reloadable. Uh, it's basically like a debit MasterCard, but you like load the money on and it's like a separate card with a separate app. And I started using that for my allowance and giving myself like a set amount of money to spend each month on that allowance card. And it was surprisingly like so easy to stick to. And that was kind of a moment of realization of like, I need to have structure, but also freedom. Because with my allowance card, I have a set amount to spend each month, but then I can spend it on whatever I want. And I didn't give myself category breakdowns in terms of like spending this much on eating out and spending this much on coffee. It was just like, here's your spending money, go and do it. And that idea of like having structure, but still having freedom has really helped me in a lot of areas with my money. And I think for me, it's kind of a competition between the ADHD part of my brain and the autistic part of my brain, because a lot of people with autism really thrive off of structure. And a lot of people with ADHD really don't like structure. So that's kind of been a way that I've been able to find that middle ground for me. And then the rest has just been a lot of trial and error of figuring out what works. Yeah, it's very similar to our bucket system that I teach in my book and on the show. It's just like overcategorization never worked for me and it was just stressful. And so just giving yourself a set amount of money for fun or fun for your goals or for your expenses, I think is a lot... It's just a lot more flexible and it's a lot more doable for real life and how it works. Like, yeah, totally. There's very rarely times where I'm like, oh, yes, I have spent my, my designated $20 this month on makeup. Like, it doesn't yeah. work that way. It's, I'm spending $500 at Sephora's annual sale. I'm doing that once a year to stock up on stuff. So I echo that and appreciate that of that flexibility that is needed. Yeah. And I think like what you just mentioned when you have, I know that the rigidity works for some people, right? but I think for a lot of people, when you have those really rigid categories, then when you don't meet those categories or you're not spending the right amount, then you feel guilt and shame around falling off of your plan or like not doing things properly. When in reality, you could still be under budget for the whole month, but just some categories are over and some categories are under. So I think that having those larger buckets is very helpful in a lot of ways. So you talk a lot about identity-based financial education and management. Can you talk about what this looks like for you specifically and then what it might look like for someone else who has an identity like is a queer person, is a trans person, is disabled, etc.? So when you fully understand your identity and how it's impacted your money story and the way that you move through the world, then you have this greater understanding of how that's going to then impact your money. And when you have that understanding, you can make decisions on how you choose to spend your money, manage your money, the type of education that you seek out that is going to support the identity that, that you have. So for me personally, because I'm neurodivergent 
any type of educational material that I'm consuming has to be delivered in a format that's going to make sense for my brain. So for some people, that might mean that they need to listen to it while they're doing something else. It might mean that they need a lot of visuals. They might need to be, you know, taught by somebody else, like whatever that looks like. So it's like the way that you learn information and also the spaces that feel safe for you. And that comes down to surrounding yourself with people that make you feel seen and heard and understood. So that plays into the financial education part of it. And then in terms of financial management, I think that your identity really impacts the ways that you choose to spend your money and also the areas of your life that might require more money that other people without those identities may not have to spend money on. So for me personally, I take ADHD medication. So that is a monthly expense that I have. And a lot of people are on different medications. That's an increased monthly expense. It could also mean uh, different things like accommodations or adaptations that you need in your daily life. So for me, my partner and I are both neurodivergent and something we struggle with is grocery shopping and meal planning. And so we get grocery delivery, which is an additional fee to do so. We also pay for the Instacart subscription, but that has cut a task out of our life that really was very stressful for us, was really overstimulating. And if I had to go grocery shopping, that was my entire Saturday. Like it would take all of my spoons for the day. And so I spend more money in certain areas of my life to make my life easier and to make daily living tasks more doable. And I think that applies to anyone else who is disabled or has mental health challenges. Sometimes you need to invest more money in your well-being. But doing so is going to help you live your life in a way that is aligned with who you are, your values, and support you in a way that otherwise wouldn't be supported if you weren't embracing that part of your identity and really thinking about how can I use money to support this aspect of my identity. But you know, regardless of the identity that you hold, everyone has an identity. And I think that it's important just to really examine what that means to you and what parts of your identity you're proud of, what parts of your identity maybe you're trying to hide from or that you're embarrassed of, because those could also be driving your spending behaviors in other ways. This is not really a question because it's going to be how do we solve systemic oppression and neither of us have the concrete answer to that other than like policy change and all of that. But what you just said is so crucial in terms of also thinking about like bare necessities in terms of like safety and, you know, a place to live that is consistent. And a lot of people and especially a lot of people in minority groups don't even have that. And so it's so crucial, I think, when we talk about money and personal finance, right, where talking about these things that make your life better or are able to accommodate how you feel or how you approach the world or how your brain is different is so important. But for many people, that's not even an option, you mm -hmm. know, because they're just trying to find safety or trying to find stability. And unfortunately, that's not, <laughs> that's not a requirement in terms of like how we treat people. I don't know. It's not really a question, but it's just like something I've struggled with a lot and would love to hear your thoughts about is it's like, this is where personal finance is beyond just our personal choices and where we need government support and where we need policy change and where we need all of these things because safety shouldn't be something that we have to pay for. 
You know what I'm yeah. saying? I don't know. Again, it's not a no. question. I just want to talk to you about it. A hundred percent. I I'm totally with you. It's like our whole society is so messed up where like, the people that need the support the most have the most barriers to get through in order to get that support. Right. Which makes no sense at all. Right. <laughs> like the title of my book is Keeping Finance Personal, but the meaning of that is like the way that you approach finances, make sure it's personal to you, but it's very much not finances is a personal problem. And I talk about this a lot in the book that most of the financial struggles that people face are due to the lack of social systems that exist and the history of white supremacy and financial institutions and like all of these things, the cost of living, inflation, like that has a bigger impact on your financial struggles than the personal decisions that you made. And there's not an answer right now. Burn all the systems to the ground and rebuild them. But like, how do we, how do we do that? Right. Right. One of the things you talk about in your book that I think is so crucial is this idea of, you know, safety. And I, there's been a lot of misunderstanding and even like mocking the idea of safe spaces. But you talk about how unsafe spaces keep people in this shame cycle and in silence. And we know from psychology that when people feel safe, they're going to be more likely to remain open to changing their thought patterns and are going to show up as the best version of themselves. So what does it mean to you to create safe spaces, to have safe spaces, especially as it relates to money? So for me, what constitutes as a safe space is a space where you feel seen, heard, and understood, and your body is at ease, like you're not in fight or flight at all. And you can ask questions without fear of judgment. You are listened to, and you feel like people can relate to your experience, you can relate to their experience. And I think that's so important when it comes to money, because as soon as we feel unsafe in any sort of money space, whether that's just like we're watching a YouTube video of someone talking about money, or we're at the bank talking to a financial advisor, then you're going to shut down and you're not going to feel comfortable asking certain questions or opening up about your situation. And I've shared my experience in the past of seeing a really awful financial advisor who just was very condescending, didn't listen to me, made misogynistic comments to me. And I just felt worse. I felt so ashamed about my situation and it further isolated me and stopped me from asking for more help. And so something I've, a technique that I've developed that I also, it's an exercise I walk through in the book is coming up with your list of red and green flags for any sort of space. So your red flags are things that signal to you that this is an unsafe space. And that can be a feeling that you have, or it can also be something more specific. Like I give the example of if you are filling out an intake form and there's like no place for you to put your pronouns or your preferred name or anything like that, that might be a sign to you that that's not a safe space. So you make this list of all these aspects of a space that make you not feel good. And then you make your green flags list, which in some ways, the opposite of red flags, but it's also more like your wish list. So all of the things in the ultimate space that would make you feel so good. So maybe that's like, they have diversity, equity and inclusion practices in place. Maybe they're really listening to you. They have pride flags everywhere and are supporting the LGBTQ plus community, you know, whatever it is for you. And then once you have these two lists, anytime you enter a space of any kind, You can then look at your two lists and say, okay, is there any red flags that are coming up? Do I have my green flags? And that can help you really determine if that is going to be a good space for you. I love that strategy. 
That's fantastic. And I love the framing too of a wish list because unfortunately, even spaces that attempt to be inclusive sometimes don't have all of the things. So it's like, what am I looking for that would allow me to feel like, okay, I'm I'm supposed to be here or this is going to be more comfortable for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You shared a reel recently that I would love to discuss. You talk about in your book, personal finance for a bunch of different lifestyles. And one of them is someone who's poly. We get some questions about that from a financial standpoint. Can you share an example of what this might look like financially and how a polyamorous person might manage their finances differently or some strategies that someone could use? Yeah. So I think there's so many different approaches depending on what being polyamorous means to you and how that plays out in your life. And I think, you know, in any relationship, obviously having conversations about money is very important, but especially in a polyamorous relationship, you're inviting more people into the relationship. So you need to have even more conversations. And I think communication is absolutely the biggest thing because if you say are, if you have one partner that you're living with and you're finances are combined in any way, if you are introducing other partners, how does that then work? Like you need to have those conversations about how you're spending your money and you know what you need to disclose or what you don't need to disclose and what they're comfortable with. So I think for sure is like having just a ton of money conversations all the time. And then in terms of some tips or advice or just how things play out differently... I interviewed a polyamorous triad for my book and they spoke a lot about things from a legal standpoint because they actually are all about to be married. Two of them are legally married right now and then they're all going to be married. But because the state that they live in only allows you to be married to one person, they can't actually legally all be married to each other. So that brings up an interesting legal consideration when you're talking about money is that like, you might want to have your own kind of legal documents in place, kind of like a prenup, but like for these situations, because now one partner is not legally protected in that marriage situation if anything were to happen. So I think that's an important consideration. And it also plays out with their home as well, because they own a home together and all their names can't be on the trust. So that's another thing that's like, those are conversations that you need to have and considerations that you need to make. And it might involve outside legal counsel to figure out like, how are you going to be protected in the future, especially if there are partners that are coming and going, or there's more serious partners, and there's ones that are less serious, like how does that work from a legal standpoint? And then how does that work with how you're spending money on a daily basis, and where your money's going, who you're sharing money with. And I think like, especially if you're have savings goals together, things like that, then there has to be the conversation of, you know, what about this partner? Or if there's a new partner coming in, how is the savings goal going to be different? And just really understanding, I think, how people are spending their money in those relationships. So there's definitely a lot to think about. (laughs) Money conversations, I feel like, is the big thing. Well, and protecting everyone in the relationship too, both, of course, emotionally, but also financially. And I love that example of like, okay, that doesn't really exist. Those forms don't really exist. So we're going to make our own Mm -hmm. and make sure they're, you know, legal documents, but make their own. You can adapt that regardless of whether you're poly or not. We get a lot of questions of like, I'm moving in with my partner and we're not married. I'm like, you need a legal agreement. Yeah. Like you need to figure out like, okay, if we're sharing finances and we're sharing money, what does happen if we separate or what does happen if we want to use this money for a particular goal, but maybe my partner doesn't? Like, 
I would rather, I mean, we, we've all seen Judge Judy, like you'd <laughs> rather have a legal document in place than not have anything at all, preparing for the worst, right? Mm-hmm. But hoping for the best. Yeah. And and something else that this triad shared with me is that they have weekly family meetings where they sit down at the kitchen table and like discuss, you know, their domestic labor and money and all of these things. But they talked about the importance of going through kind of a financial checklist of important things that they need to touch on and allowing each person to have their time to speak and that they basically don't move on to the next thing until everyone is in agreement, everyone has an understanding. And I think that was like a really great way to approach that and to really make sure that everyone has a voice. Because I think in some ways there is potential for maybe some voices to be more vocal than others. And you don't want to end up in a situation where someone is feeling like they don't have financial autonomy in that relationship. So I love the idea of a family meeting. And even like a, if you're not all dating each other, then like a, a group chat or something where you can discuss some of the more serious financial purchases. Right. Roommates can do this too. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of the things that we have talked so much about on this show that I cover in an entire chapter of my book and that you cover in yours is just the emotions of money, the psychology of money, but specifically like trauma and the way we all have financial trauma, even the people who are quote unquote good with money. So can we go through some of what you discovered during your research for the book on how someone with trauma may struggle with finances and then talking specifically about financial trauma? How does that show up in our lives? So the idea of trauma and the connection to money. For me, that research really stemmed from taking a certification program called the Trauma of Money. And in that program, we were introduced to the idea that any sort of trauma that you experience in your life is going to affect your relationship with money. And a lot of times when we are dealing with our finances or learning about money, those feelings or emotions that are tied to you know tr- other trauma that we've experienced can show up with our money because money is so emotional and it's tied to so many things. And so then we end up being in a trauma activated state, which essentially when that happens, your prefrontal cortex, the higher level thinking area of your brain is going to shut down and you're going to be making decisions from the survival part of your brain. So when we're talking about making financial decisions, you're no longer able to make decisions in a way that you usually would, where you can think about all the options and what would make most sense for you in the long term. And instead, you're kind of in this fight or flight mode where you're going to make a more rash decision, one that's in the moment and may not be the decision that you usually make because you're in this trauma activated state. And we can also, of course, experience financial trauma, but it doesn't have to be directly linked to finances in order to show up in your relationship with money. Some of the financial behaviors that can stem from that are avoidance. So avoiding your finances, avoiding looking at your bank account, not paying your taxes, not opening you know, mail about your credit card or student loans. It can also manifest as overspending or underspending. Both are coping mechanisms that might come up for you when you're experiencing trauma. And it can also show up as codependency and basically like a lack of boundaries, which an example of that is often in the workplace, not, you know, negotiating for your worth and overworking and being underpaid and things like that. So it really affects so many areas of your life. And I think it's important to acknowledge that there are so many different types of trauma and that everyone has experienced trauma. 
I think a lot of people kind of gaslight themselves and say, well, I didn't experience like a really big traumatic event, but there's other trauma that you can experience. Right. It's not capital T trauma. Yes. <laughs> it's little T trauma. Yeah. Exactly. So you don't think you've had any, I mean, I am lucky enough to say that I have not really had any big T trauma in my life. And until I started going to therapy, I was like, oh, my life's been fine. <laughs> but realizing like things can be traumatic, even if they aren't the capital T trauma or the things we would more classically define as traumatic. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, something the the co-founder of the trauma of money, Chantel Chapman, she says that, you know, money in society for us represents safety, security, and worthiness. And so that is greatly impacted by like any trauma that we face. So if we experience a maybe traumatic situation in a relationship where we feel like we're not good enough or that we're not worthy of being loved, that can also show up in our finances because, you know, maybe you go to pay for something and your car declines and suddenly you're embarrassed and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm not managing my money well enough. I'm not good enough. And that trauma that you've experienced in a completely different situation, that same feeling and that same like trauma activation can come up when you're dealing with your money because it's so tightly tied to like our sense of self and the way that society defines our worth and all of these things. Well, and something we've discussed on the show and we actually just talked about as a team today is often when, you know, you make a mistake or you, you know, something happens. It's not a fact. It's not a thing that happened. It's your identity. So it's not, I failed. It's, I am a failure. And I think it's interesting if we then relate that to, you know, what you're talking about with identity of, you know, this identity based financial education, if you are defining, you know, parts of your identity, it can be so easy then to say, as you're getting started on your money journey, well, I'm bad with money, or I am a person who is bad with money. In addition to being queer or neurodivergent or, you know, these other identities. So I think that that is actually where the identity thing can be really challenging because money is just like a skill. It's a skill that you learn just like any other skill. It's not an identity. Mm -hmm. You weren't like born with the good with money gene or not. And so (laughs) I think that so many people I talk to and I know you talk to is it's like you being good with money or bad with money is it's not a default state. It's not your identity that can shift and change. Yeah, 100%. This is something that has always baffled me since I first got into the finance space is like, why is there this weird societal expectation that we should just be born knowing how to manage money, but we don't apply that to so many other things? Like, Right, right, right. I think that there's a general understanding that you're not going to know how to cook unless someone teaches you or you follow a recipe and a cookbook. Tiffany Aliche came on this show and she said, if I break my arm, I'm not going to be like, how do I set my own bone? Yeah, no, literally. <laughs> no one thinks that way. And like, same with like, I always use fitness as an example. Like if you're going to start doing yoga or like Olympic weightlifting, nobody would be like, you don't know how to do that. Like everyone would be like, yeah, obviously you're going to go to a class or like see a coach. Right. I'm trying to speak <laughs> fluent French. I'm not going to be fluent to the first class and I'm not going to just, yeah, yeah, it's, it's anything. I play learn how to play the tuba. Okay. I'm not going to be the virtuoso in the yeah. orchestra tomorrow. But yet money, same thing. We like pop out of the womb and we're like, we should be good with money. Yeah, it's so, it's so weird. There's such a weird societal expectation. And I think like a lot of it also is further exacerbated by the fact that people don't talk about money. And so then everyone just perceives 
that everyone else around them is doing good and that is great with money because no one's sharing how they're actually doing. And so then this like leads to more shame spiral and thinking that you're the only one struggling. And it's just not true. And like you said, it's a skill that you can learn and your current finances are not a reflection of your self-worth in any way and of your who you are, your identity. Like it's it's just a thing that you can learn and it's not your fault if you struggled with your finances because you probably weren't given the tools to succeed. Right. I want to go back to what you said earlier about, you know, the identity-based approach to money and you know, one of the examples you use is for trans folks, you know, something like a transition surgery costs a lot of money, but it has both the lowest regret rate and the, you know, decrease in suicide is as much as like 70% for a population that is unfortunately highly suicidal. So are there people in groups that are traditionally underrepresented that you interview in the book? And can you share some of the stories about how they navigate identity-based finances and how they might make certain decisions that, you know, on paper financially might not be smart, but make their lives better. Yeah. So you actually are, it's a reference to one of the people I interviewed in the book who is Stevie and he is a trans man and he transitioned like over 15 years ago. And so it's had a lot of experience living as a trans man And something that he shared with me is that he recently started getting manicures. And this was actually a way for him to kind of take back the power of a piece of his identity that was kind of taken away from him. Because when he started his transition, he felt like he needed to be hyper-masculine. And so he kind of, you know, anything that was would be labeled as slightly feminine, he stopped doing because he wanted to really step into his new identity. But now he's realized that he enjoys, you know, kind of not really putting a label on what's feminine, what's masculine, just kind of doing what feels good and embracing all sides of himself. And so one of those is getting manicures, which is a monthly expense that many people would say is frivolous or unnecessary. But for him, it's a way to represent who he is and to take back that sense of self. And I think that was one of the really powerful interviews in the book. But there's there's a lot of interviews and it was really important to me to really amplify those voices that are traditionally, you know, not given a voice when it comes to the finance space. And so there's folks with various disabilities that I interviewed for the book that shared their experience. We have Stevie, who's a trans man. We have indigenous perspectives, the polyamorous triad, like a lot of different marginalized groups, non-binary folks speaking to their experience and the way that their relationship with money has been impacted by their identity and also the way that they manage their money based on their identity. And that's probably one of my favorite parts of the whole book. And I honestly could have just wrote a book entirely of other people's interviews, which I guess wouldn't be me writing it. But that was like one of the best parts about writing the book is having all those interviews. Yeah, I had a very similar experience because our books are formatted the same way where, you know, I pop in and then we have like an interview as a sidebar and very similar situation where I was like, more of these. And it's why I host a podcast. Yes, very smart. Because <laughs> it was like more interviews and more perspectives from other people it's talking so about things. <laughs> As we wrap up, you are Canadian. And one of the questions we just get a lot of the time because we have a big international audience is what do you recommend Canadians do? So I'm just going to do like a quick rapid fire. Okay. Canadian bank account or high yield savings account. Where should I go? Where should I look? 
I am a big fan of EQ Bank for high yield savings accounts. I also like the Wellsimple cash accounts and the Neo Financial cash account, I think. I don't know what they changed their name to. Neo Money, I think, actually. Neo Money account. But it's their version of high yield savings account. (laughs) Okay, that's amazing. Let's talk about retirement accounts. What are my best options and where do I go to open one? So best options would be TFSA and RSP. I am personally a fan of maxing out your TFSA first, but it does depend on your situation. So, you know, make sure you pay attention to your personal situation and goals and income and all of those things. And in terms of where to open an account, I recommend an online brokerage like Quest Trade or Wellsimple. Amazing. And anything specifically that you would advise Canadians to do in terms of like, I don't know, money hacks or things that are different for money in Canada versus another country? One thing is the Coho card, which I talk about a lot. And people always ask for an alternative in the US. And I feel like there are some close ones, but nothing that really relates. I'm just such a big fan of Coho. It's a kind of prepaid spending card. And I think it's just so great to use as a spending card and to use as kind of your allowance card. And they also have a great joint account as well. So like, I highly recommend that to any Canadian. I think it's a great tool and app that just Americans don't have. And another thing is the first time home buyers account just was introduced this year. So I recommend opening that account, even if you're not sure if you're going to use it, even if you don't have any money to put into it. But if you open it this year, then you will get that contribution room and it will carry over. And this is the first year it was introduced. So just get the account. It's free. You don't have to do anything. And then you can decide later if you want to use it. But at least you'll be gaining the contribution room. That's new to me. I didn't even know those accounts existed. Fantastic. Thank you for being on the show. Where can people buy your book? Where can people find out more about you? Plug away, my friend. (laughs) Okay. Thank you so much for having me. You can pre-order the book at basically any major retailer. You can go to www.queerdco.com slash book. And that will have all of the links where you can buy it. Uh, It's available Barnes and Nobles, Amazon, Indigo, and also quite a few indie bookstores as well. And then you can find me on social media on Instagram at elise.fullmore. And you can find me on TikTok at queered.co. And yeah, those are the main areas. But Go pre-order the book. Go rewrite your money story. Give me a follow and let me know if you found me from this podcast because I'd love to. I'd love to know. <laughs> I blurbed her book. It's fantastic, especially for our neurospicy folks or anybody in any marginalized group. I think it's really especially fantastic. So, highly recommend. Good companion to the other finance books in your collection. So, highly recommend it. Thank you to Elise for joining us. You can find her book wherever you buy books. It's called Keeping Finance Personal. And I blurbed the book. I think it's such a great guide, especially for people who have largely been left out of the personal finance community. So if you're neurospicy, especially, this is going to be a great book for you. Thank you for being here, Financial Feminist. I hope you're having a great start to the new year. Strap in for a whole bunch of things that we're excited to launch and create for you in 2024. And we'll see you back here soon. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to Financial Feminist, a Her First 100K podcast. Financial Feminist is hosted by me, Tori Dunlap, produced by Kristen Fields, associate producer, Tamisha Grant, marketing and administration by Karina Patel, Sophia Cohen, Khalil Dumas, Elizabeth McCumber, Beth Bowen, 
Amanda LaFew, Masha Bakhmukieva, Kaylin Sprinkle, Samaya Molokurio, and Harvey Carlson. Research by Ariel Johnson, audio engineering by Alyssa Medcalf, promotional graphics by Mary Stratton, photography by Sarah Wolf, and theme music by Jonah Cohen Sound. A huge thanks to the entire HerFirst 100K team and community for supporting the show. For more information about Financial Feminist, HerFirst 100K, our guests, and episode show notes, visit financialfeministpodcast.com.